So let's bow together before we look into God's Word. So Father, we've been singing some great Trinitarian stuff and reading stuff about Jesus. We just thank you that in a way we can't understand what is clearly articulated in Scripture, you are one God who expresses himself in three distinct persons. We thank you that you never turned your back on us after we had turned our back on you. And we thank you that you are holy, like we've been singing about in those last two songs, and that it's only because of Christ that we can stand in your presence or that you'll have anything to do with us because you're perfect. You're unmarred in any way by sin. And yet because of Jesus, because of his sacrifice, we can have relationship. We can um, relate to you. And so we're so grateful for that. Lord, as we consider your word now, which is that also a, just a wonderful gift from you, we pray that you would speak to us by your spirit, the third member of the Trinity, who points us to truth, the Bible says, who points us to Jesus, who convicts us where we need to be convicted. We thank you for your role as well, Spirit of God, and we pray that you would speak first to me, but to each one here. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I'm in, but. This is the title of the new series that we're starting this week, and it sounds kind of weird at first when you hear it, and I can perhaps best explain it by using a story I'm going to borrow from a guy named Craig. And, and as we launch this new series, um, once in a while through the series, I'll borrow some ideas from Craig Rochelle in his book, The Christian Atheist. And when you hear that title, The Christian Atheist, it sounds somewhat confusing. And he explains it through this story that will help us also understand what this series is going to be about. And so the story goes like this. It's a true story. Craig had to fly somewhere, and there was two flights involved. He gets on the first flight, and as he sits in his seat, the guy sitting right beside him is a guy named Travis. And Travis initiates conversation and says to Craig, uh, what do you do for a living? And Craig says, I'm a pastor. And immediately, Craig gets somewhat hostile, cuts him right off, and says, I don't believe in God. I think Christians, for the most part, are just pure hypocrites. I think they use religion as a crutch to avoid the real world. Just saying. And then he said, but I think Christians are among the weakest people in the world. And of course you want to say, well, why don't you tell me what you really think? But so he gets off that flight, he gets on the next plane, and he sits down and sitting beside him this time is a young woman named Michelle. And Michelle begins to tell her story, and she's quite anxious about life, and she's having problems with her boyfriend. And she says to Craig, to Craig rather, she says, I live with my boyfriend, I'm not married. And my boyfriend, and there was other issues in her life, but she said, my boyfriend is afraid of, he says he loves me, but he's afraid of commitment, and he doesn't want to marry me. And she's very upset about this and a number of other things. And then eventually she kind of says to Craig, and what do you do for a living? 
And Craig says to her, I'm a pastor. And she lights up and she says, oh, I believe in God. And, uh, you know, earlier in my life, I gave my life to Jesus and he changed me. And then she continues to confess stuff about, you know, things that she's doing in her life that really wouldn't be honoring to God. And she says, you know, among other things, she said, I've always meant to go to church or whatever, but I've just never kind of gotten around to it. And she says, but I do pray quite frequently that my boyfriend will become a Christian and that he'll want to marry me. And then the tears came down her cheeks and she wrapped up by saying, uh, I know my life doesn't look like what a Christian, you know, how that's pictured in the Bible, but I do believe there's a God. And so Craig, in commenting on these two encounters, said, Travis is a philosophical atheist, and Michelle is a practical Christian atheist. She says she believes in God, but she lives as if God does not exist, and what he says just doesn't matter. Now, if you shine the light on me for a moment, I don't do what Michelle does. I haven't made those choices that she's making. But I'm ashamed to admit that even though um, I know Christ is my Savior and I know there's a God, I believe all those things, my life is by, changed by Him, but it, there are some areas and sometimes there are choices in my life that would seem to exhibit a practical atheism to them. I believe there's a God. Christ has changed me. I believe in his word. I know the call to a holy life. I know it can't be lived in my own strength. It's meant to be and can only be lived. The normal Christian life is to be lived in the power of the Spirit in a way that, that exalts Christ just by the choices I make. And yet there are some areas at points or whatever or choices that I make that it would appear from an outsider as you're looking in that in a certain sense, I'm a practical atheist in those ways because it seems like in my life, when I make a choice like that, it's like I don't believe God exists or what he says really matters in those areas. Do you ever find yourself there? So what we want to do in this little series for the next couple months or so is we want to talk about practically how can I reduce the gap, collapse the gap between what I say I believe and what exactly goes actually goes on in my life. Thus the title, I'm in, but. In other words, I'm in. I believe there's a God and Christ has changed my life, but I really don't want you to have an all-access pass into my life, Lord. I want you in my life, but when it comes to this particular area or that particular area, I don't want you to touch those areas. Today's message is more of a foundational message. It's more of an introductory message. And the idea is, is we're going to look at a, at a doctrine or a theological idea from Scripture that I believe with all my heart that when we, when we come to grips with this truth, when we begin to appreciate it and step into it more, it shapes our life in a way that will bridge that gap, whether it's small or somewhat large in our life, between what we say we believe and what actually goes on in our life. 
And I would suggest a classic example of this doctrine, which is the doctrine of adoption can be found in the book of Galatians. And so I'd encourage you to turn with me in your Bible or on your device to Galatians chapter 3. And if you come to Corinthians, it's just a little bit to the right. If you come to Colossians or one of those, you've gone a little too far, just swing back a bit. And you'll come to the book of Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading in verse 26 through actually verse 7 of chapter 4. As I read this, I want to remind you, this is the word of the Lord. You know the reason we do that? That's an act of worship, a participatory worship. If I say uh, yes or amen or whatever it is I say, or thanks be to God, whatever I say, I'm really saying, yeah, I affirm that this is God's word, that it's a vital blueprint for my life. And really, this is an act of worship to so beginning in chapter 3, verse 26, Paul says this, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no longer from a he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. We'll explain that in a few minutes. That seems a little confusing to us. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. And so this passage, like I said, is perhaps the classic passage in scripture that sort of unveils or unwraps the doctrine of adoption, the idea that God by his spirit actually adopts us, that we are a chosen child, that we can, when we receive the grace that God offers, become a part of the family of God, that when I come to the place where I say, God has offered this, this grace, and I acknowledge that, yeah, I've done sinful things, that the only way for those things to be dealt with exclusively is by the act of Christ going to the cross and wine, rising from the dead on my behalf. That I asked him for forgiveness based on that and that alone, not on anything I could or even would try to do. And that I receive him not only as Savior, but as Lord, which is equally important, where I just say, I don't totally know what this means, but I'm just giving you my life. And I surrender to you, and you can, you can lead me as you see fit. That when I receive this, that the Spirit of God, I'm, I'm a chosen child. I'm an adopted child. And this is an incredibly beautiful image and gift from God. So let us unwrap it from this passage because when this was written, they had a very different way 
uh, of thinking about adoption different than we would typically think about it. And so it's important, if we want to understand this passage clearly, we have to understand that cultural setting and what they were, what was ruling, because the crowd that he wrote it to understood these things. But for us, it will seem very different. And so Paul, in his day, for him, adoption meant to be given a future. This is one of the primary ideas behind it. And this is when he says, this is what it's like for us when we are in Christ, his chosen adopted child. He says, I've got incredible news for you. When you are in Christ, when you have been adopted, when you have been chosen by God, you have been not only given a future, but you've been given a glorious future. A glorious future. And the key idea for Paul that they understood in those days was the connection between adoption and inheritance. And so this is where it's different from where we would typically think of when we think of adoption in our day, as I would understand it at least, when you adopt an orphan or a child that has no parents, the primary goal or the thing that's most paramount in your mind is that, that you're giving this orphan, this child, a home. You're taking them into your home. Inheritance may be, but it may not be part of the formula. It's certainly not the most important part of why you're doing it. And, and, and adoption, as we picture it, as we engage in it, is a beautiful thing. I have two nieces, and both of my nieces are adopted. Thea is 16 years old. She just got her driver's license this last week. Very proud of her. Uh, my younger niece, Megan, just turned 13 a few weeks ago. And both Thea and Megan uh, are adopted, chosen children. They were born in separate provinces in the, in the country of mainland China. And my sister Heather and Greg made two separate trips to China for a couple of weeks each time and, and they brought them home and they have this wonderful family, loving family. And the primary goal there was to give these children a loving, uh, encouraging home. And they've created this wonderful home and family together. In the Bible, at the time this was written, adoption wasn't primarily about providing for Jews, an orphan child was simply raised by a relative. If there was no relatives, they typically became a slave because they, don't have, they didn't have a social safety net like we do now. In the Greco-Roman world, adoption was really only done by the wealthy. And it was not about taking care of an orphan in the sense of, of looking to give them a home, the primary thinking behind it was the passing on of the family line and the family estate to the next generation. They were thinking, I've got to make sure my family line passes on. And so the head of the family in Latin was called the paterfamilias, from which we get the word paternal. And the paterfamilias wanted to make sure, very important to him, that his family and his family line and all of his resources went forward. But if he had no male heirs, this was a significant problem because if he, when he died, his name and his resources would be transferred to someone else. And so the pater would very carefully go about choosing a suitable male heir through adoption. And you, you didn't, 
You weren't, when you were looking for this child or dog or this young adult or whatever the case was, you weren't really thinking in terms, this is certainly not the primary thing for them, about bringing them into the home. In fact, often the adopted child or person didn't even come into the home. And I was thinking of an illustration of this, and I, just as I was praying this morning, actually, it popped in my mind, and it's illustrated, if you've seen the movie Ben-Hur, it's illustrated there that Ben-Hur is a Jewish slave, and if you've read, seen the story, he eventually, through a bunch of circumstances, gets adopted by a high-ranking Roman general who has no male heir. And Benner doesn't go to live in the home or anything like that, but he is adopted by the Petur Familius. He's given the family signet ring for which he can sign for things and he has authority and all of the resources of this Roman general becomes his. And so the Petur would go and they would look and they would have people look for them for someone suitable that had great potential to carry on the family name well, which is what that Roman general was doing with, with, with Ben-Hur. He was looking, I know it's fictionalized or whatever, but he was looking for someone suitable to carry on his family name because they wanted that to happen. And so in that culture and in that time, when you were adopted in this way, this was a tremendous honor and a fabulous opportunity. To be adopted by a wealthy, powerful family was the chance of a lifetime. And you were then blessed, this is important, you were blessed with every resource of the Patur. You had the privilege, not just the privilege of, of inheriting something, but also the responsibility, they go hand in hand, of influencing the, you know, extending the influence of that family into the world. This is why Paul writes in verse 7. When you understand that backdrop, listen to what he writes in verse 7. So you are no longer a slave when you're in Christ, but a son. And since you are a son, God has also made you an heir. You have been given a glorious future and an inheritance that is based in all that God has when you are in Christ. Understand this about adoption. Adoption means that whatever has gone on in your past, you have a future. You have a glorious future. And Paul is saying, now live out of that. Live like that. Be deep. Let there not be a day go by, goes by, Paul is really suggesting, that you're not deeply grateful for your future. That you're not saying, thank you so much that because I'm in Christ, everything is new, and I am an heir of everything available from Almighty God. So let's just break it down a little bit more because they had several layers of understanding of this because adoption meant forgiveness from debt. In those days, when someone got into financial trouble, they didn't just put it on their credit card or go to the bank and hope for the, the best. You got into financial trouble, you know, it's a big deal here, but it was a really big deal back then. And so sometimes the biological parents would have to sell their biological children into slavery. If they made a series of bad choices or misfortune or whatever, they would have no choice. 
By the way, that still happens in our world. That still happens in our world right here. I've seen this. And it's a horrible thing. It's a horrible injustice. If the, in those days, if the biological father died, the biological son was still obligated to pay the debt. But if this son was adopted by a pature familius, he was free. He was redeemed from the debt of his old life. In fact, he could point to his new daddy and say, talk to him. And Paul is saying, this is such a beautiful image. This is who you are in Christ. All that old stuff, you could point to the living Christ. Because when you are in Christ, not only can you look forward to this great inheritance, it means right now, and listen to me very carefully, you are free from an unpayable moral debt when you are in Christ. You are free from an unpayable moral debt. And the Bible is very clear that everyone in this room, everyone that's ever lived, has an unpayable moral debt. And there's nothing we can do to deal with that. Nothing we can do to take care of that. But when you are adopted by God, the guilt and the shame, you don't have to carry it anymore because you're in Christ. When you wake up, and perhaps you did last night, when you wake up in the middle of the night and you're tossing and turning because of the things that you have done, you don't have to live in that anymore. Because you're in Christ. Friends, this is an incredible gift from God that we forget that we're living in. Not deserved, not earned by us in any way, but a gift from Almighty God. This is why he says in verse 5, he says, Jesus did all this stuff. He, uh, let's turn to verse 4. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law. Really, when you're under the law, really what it did, it was it just magnified the gap between yourself and myself and a holy God who's absolutely perfect without stain or blemish or any sin of any kind. And, and being under the law just showed that there's this gap that can never be taken care of, never be bridged. And this is why Jesus came, that he was born of a woman. And he came and, and, and lived among us, as we read from Philippians chapter 2 earlier in the service. This is why he went to the cross and died in your place in order to redeem you, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. This is an incredible gift from an incredibly generous Paul is saying there shouldn't be a day go by that we don't stop and say thank you for fully, fully providing for me. I'm going to live in light of that. Adoption also means that we have a new security. And they would understand this stuff, that we have a new security. A new security for very insecure people, which we all are in some way or another. 
Now, back then, it involved this stuff, very elaborate ceremonies. The biological father, as I said at points, would, would have to, some of them would have to sell their children. They would, it was the word called emancipate, for which we get emancipate. And they, they would do it sometimes more than once because they, they would sell their kid and then they would maybe get some money in and they would go and buy their kid back and then it might happen again and there's all these things. But the, the, the pature um, would come in and he would take the place as an adoptive father and he would say, this has become my legal son. And so the biological parents, some of them would, as I said, would have to sell their kids maybe even more than once. And I was sitting there thinking about this going, can you imagine how devastating that would be to a kid? This happened and it might happen again? And how worried you'd be? Is dad making a dumb decision here financially? And how is that gonna wreck on me? Can you imagine how insecure you would feel in life? But after the ceremony, this elaborate ceremony, where the Pater would adopt a son, it ensured that the adopted son would never be sold again. This is an unbreakable promise. No matter what, you will always be my son. And ironically, in some senses, and they understood this, the adopted son was in a position of much more security than a biological offspring. And Paul is saying, when you're in Christ, you are secure. You're completely secure. And he's saying to you again, does that appeal to you? You know, we all try to earn security all the time through money or good health, you know, try to look younger or try to get more, uh, more education or a better job and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. They're all good things in and of themselves. But we pursue those things sometimes. Maybe our motivation is because we think they will give us security, even though deep inside us, anybody that thinks knows none of those things will give security, ultimately. But here's the promise of the Bible. The God of all the universe, the God that created me and created you, promises I will. When you are a chosen child, when you are an adopted son or daughter, part of the family of God, you are absolutely secure in Christ. This is where some of these biblical promises that nothing, nothing, either on heaven or in the supernatural realm, can wrench us away from the love of God, it says in the book of Romans. In Hebrews, it says nothing will cause God to leave us or forsake us. Do you ever stop? and thank him for that security in a world that's deeply insecure. You know, yesterday, 5% of the world's oil production by a terrorist event taken away, boom, just like that. In a very insecure world, we have a God who's absolutely secure. And Paul says, now live like that. Adoption means also a new identity. 
When you were adopted by the Patur, you were given a new name. And so you looked at yourself and everyone else looked at you differently. And once again, a very big, very elaborate ceremony in Athens. They called it the introduction. And the adopted son and a father and son would go into the temple, the adoptive father and the son rather, would go into the temple and an animal would be sacrificed. The father would put his hands on the sacrificial animal and he would swear in front of those that were there, this is my child. And then he would introduce his new son to the family and the name would go in their official registry so that no one could ever dispute that this child belonged to the father. And Paul is saying this, he's saying, and again, they're appreciating all this, but then he says these radical things. He says, you are all sons of God through, in verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. When you're adopted into Christ, when you receive his grace, you're an adopted child, a chosen child. You are part of the family of God. Here's something that's really cool. In a world where we're frequently trying to prove we're somebody. You know, look at me, look at my job, look at my resume, look at my degrees, look at my accomplishments. And again, I'm not saying there's wrong, anything wrong with any of those things. What is wrong is when we think we have to prove our self-worth that we are somebody out of those things and that we're secure from those things. Instead, here's this incredible promise from Jesus. You are somebody already because you are in Christ. And so what Paul is saying is, friends, listen to this cool thing. He's saying, you can officially resign from the rat race of trying to prove that you're a somebody by your accomplishments because you're already a somebody in Christ. And not, that can never be taken away because you're a child of God. You are a somebody. And Paul is saying, live based on this truth. Adoption also means a new freedom. If you were adopted by the Pretur because they were quite wealthy and involved in things, if you were still a minor before uh, you hadn't reached the age of majority or whatever, they would arrange, and hopefully I'm saying these Latin words right, a tutelia, and Latin is, this is Latin for tutor, and it's used in about 14 different ways in the language, but as it relates to this circumstance here in verse one, they, the, the tutula would watch over you in case the patur died before you grew up. And legally in that setting, it was like being a slave under the tutela. And this could be very difficult, and often the adopted son looked forward to the day of freedom. This is what Paul is talking about. We referenced this earlier in verse 1. He says, what I am saying, so he's explaining it here, what I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. Interesting. So Paul, Paul keeps saying over and over again, sons, and yet he makes a very radical statement that he would never have made prior to giving his life to Christ, where he says in verse 28, listen to what he reads, he says, now when you're in Christ, 
there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Why does he keep saying sons other places rather than children? In the ancient world, how many girls were adopted? Basically zero. Very, very few. The girl was orphaned, as I said, she be raised by another family member, but if there was no family member, she would just become a slave because there was no other way to live. But she would not be adopted because the woman, because this girl, this woman, could not become the head of a household. In fact, as I understand it, in Greece, a woman could not inherit. So if the father died with a daughter and no son, one of the near relatives, would, male relatives, would come and was supposed to marry this daughter so the family line could be passed on. And Paul says some radical stuff here, which I said, which I would suggest because the way of God is so counterculture, was so far ahead of where they were then and where we are now. Paul is saying, listen, you got to understand something. That which was only given to males is fully available males and females in Christ because women are equally loved equally valued as men and all the sin-based false distinctions of gender and race and economic status when you are in Christ are gone He says in verse 28, because we are one in Christ. This is one of the clearest evidences of the light completely transformed. Because before Paul uh, came to Christ, he wouldn't even talk to a woman that wasn't his wife. If there was a Gentile coming down the street or a Samaritan, someone who was of mixed ethnicity, might have some Jewish ethnicity, but other, as a Pharisee, he would cross to the other side of the street. And so you see God having completely transformed this guy. And all these sin-based distinctions of gender and race and economic status are gone because we're equally loved and equally valued in Christ. Who would adopt a female back then? Nobody, basically. Who would adopt a Gentile back then? No. Who would adopt a slave? Not a chance. But Paul says in Christ, God has chosen to adopt you all. That's pretty neat. That's pretty neat. Now live like that. Thank him for that. Not let, don't let there be a day go by that you don't say, as a child of God, this has changed how I approach life. And I'm going to live out of that equality, out of that significance, out of that new identity, out of that security. So there's four wealthy brothers. And uh, they had an elderly mom. And they hadn't taken time with her, and they really didn't want to invest time in her. And uh, she was quite a, quite a down-to-earth person, quite a you know, just kind of simple approach to life. And they just didn't want to spend time with her. And so they decided to buy her because they were all wealthy, all four of them, really expensive gifts. And, you know, gifts giving is a wonderful thing, but sometimes, sometimes we use that as an excuse not to spend time with people, right? 
So that's what these brothers were doing with mom. So they decide to give her very extravagant gifts. Brother number one gives her a house. Brother number two says, well, if you're giving her a house, I will build a portion of the house. I'll build a media room with a, a Bose surround system, and it's a hun about 100 grand. I'm going to really pump into this house. Well, the third brother says, well, she needs a way to get around. And so he says, I'll buy her a brand new Beamer, a brand new BMW. It's about 100K for this thing. And she'll be able to park it in her brand new garage. Um, the last brother um, tried to get a little more personal with her and said, you know, Mom, I know Mom really loves the Bible, but Mom really can't read anymore. She's too elderly. Her eyesight is deteriorated. She really can't read anymore. But he says, I've heard about this parrot that this preacher owns that he has trained to recite large portions of the Bible. And so he goes and he buys this parrot, and he has to pledge $100,000 to the church to buy this parrot. And he says, it'll be so cool for mommy, because she can't see very well, but she can just say a reference, and this parrot will be able to recite it for her. Well, mom decides to write thank you notes. She can't really write them herself because of her vision. And so she gets someone to write them for her. And she says, just write what I say. And so to her first son, she says, listen, I appreciate the gift, but I got to be honest with you. The house is fairly large. And I, I'm a pretty simple person. I really only live in two rooms, but I still have to clean the whole thing. So I guess thanks anyways. Then to the second son, she says, you know, the theater, the theater surround sound, and it's pretty cool. It's got 15 seats. Well, you know, I'm at the age now where most of my friends have died, and I really can't see the picture anyway. So thanks anyway. To the third son, she says, you know, it's kind of hard for me to go out. I get my groceries delivered. I buy a lot of things online. And so the car just kind of sits in the garage. But thanks anyways. Well, the last son, she says, what an incredible thoughtful gift from you. Thank you so much for that. The chicken was delicious. <laughs> and you know, we're all like that with God sometimes, aren't we? God gives us these incredible gifts. And sometimes we don't use them or we just throw them away. And all the time he's saying, I invite you to live as an adopted child, a chosen child, a child who's part of the family of God. Be grateful for your position in Christ. Don't let there day, be a day go by that you don't reflect on that and be grateful in light of that. Because I believe fundamentally that when we live in that kind of environment and we cultivate that in our life, that we're just much more prone to live like God really does exist that he, what he says actually matters. Not just in parts of my life, but in all of my life. So just, just a final word here to those that perhaps you're sitting here and you say, you know, I've, I'm being honest, Scott, I've never been adopted that way. Never been chosen to my knowledge. Uh, I certainly know that I've never made the decision to receive all that God offers. I've never come to the place of getting very real about my sin and saying, I have this unpayable debt that you talked about earlier. I didn't really know before that I couldn't kind of just work it off somehow by being a good person or 
giving money to charities or something like that. I thought that would all help and it would all come out in the wash in the end, but now you're telling me I'm being actually compared to God? And I understand I don't measure up. I understand none of us do. And so I've never come to the place of saying, yeah, I, full, I fall woefully short. There's nothing I can do about it. Now I understand, or I'm beginning to appreciate that it's only in Jesus that I can be cleansed and forgiven. So I've never done that never received him as savior and i haven't surrendered my life to him i don't know if i totally get what that means but i've never come to the place where i've really just laid it all down the bible is very clear that you can't have one without the other they go together but this idea of being a chosen child it sounds deeply inviting to me deeply attractive because I want to have a glorious future and love that security you talked about. I'd like a new identity. I'd like a new freedom. I'd like to live in the truth that I'm actually equally loved and equally valued as everyone around me. If that's something you're just it's just kind of resonating with you and you're wrestling with that i just urge you not to leave here without talking to someone about that uh sharon emery are going to be up here at the front these are some leaders in our church right up to my right here you could come and talk to them and they would pray or try to answer your questions you could talk to the people you came with maybe they're already people that have given their life to Jesus, you could ask them. You could talk to one of the pastors that were up here on the platform. I just urge you, don't leave um, with those questions kind of hanging out there hoping for the best. Live as an adopted child. Let's bow our heads together.